0: Well, um, let me start with a very short prologue, The Cockroach Syndrome, which is exemplified by this quotation. It's a rather provocative quotation from a contemporary Russian postmodernist writer, whom you may know, Viktor Yarafeyev, uh, who has a travelogue, which is called Five Rivers of Life. And this quotation can attune us to the prevailing post-Soviet sensibility of the last two decades, which have considerably remapped and reconfigured borders, of course, and not only borders, but also frontiers, as they existed uh, and were imagined before. So you see, a Russian in Europe is like a cockroach, here he writes. He's running, moving his whiskers, nervously smelling. He's scandalous for Europe's clean surface. Europe can contemplate with an interest the exotic insects. It would like some kind of poisonous tarantula or caterpillar. Ladybirds are a touching sight for it, but they are no good cockroaches. And later at some point he adds, if I want, I can go from Moscow to Asia or to Europe. It's clear where I'm going to, but it's unclear where I'm coming from." End of quote. So what is he talking about here? In the colonial terms, he's talking about the imperial difference, which intersects, but does not quite merge with familiar political, ideological dichotomies, like liberalism versus socialism and the kind of painful and unproductive sensibility that it generates. And also the peculiar invisibility, which is alternating with uh, hypervisibility, uh, as in case of African-Americans in the US, and the non-existence of the post-socialist other in the new world order, the syndrome of the vanished second world. So um, the post-Soviet people, after the end of history, is our next focus. As you know, Orientalism and Occidentalism were the concepts uh, of a particular historical and geopolitical context and logic, that of the European normative nation-states, capitalist empires of modernity, comparativist taxonomic anxiety as the main measuring tool for humanity, and appropriation or assimilation or annihilation sometimes as the basic acculturation technique. This general dichotomous logic was maintained during the short, in historical terms, period of capitalism versus socialism divide, uh, often translating purely ideological characteristics of the second world into racial and cultural differential and uh, what we can call imperial colonial relations or uh, differential. Uh, Then the almost overnight vanishing of the second world in the early 1990s led to a very strange (coughs) symptom, which was detectable in the infamous Francis Fukuyama's The End of History discourse that you're all familiar with. And in the typical Western understanding of the post-Soviet as um, time after socialism and not as space, where the post-socialist subjects still have to dwell. And this rendered irrelevant and invisible dozens of millions of people who still struggle with their existence in the territory to the east of the West. In this new historical narrative, the defeated socialist enemy had to follow the familiar structural pattern and obediently uh, disappear, we can say, after the heroic epic of capitalism versus socialism was over. Symptomatically, it was true also of the post-colonial theorists demonstrating their inherent indebtedness to the imperial, temporal, spatial, conceptual matrix of Western modernity. For example, take Gayatri Spivak's 1999 book the critique of post-colonial reason, where she also speaks uh, about post-socialists in purely temporal terms. Now the question arises, can we apply post-colonial theory to post-socialist reality, or should we do that? At the peak of the post-colonial fashion and in the absence uh, of any meaningful overall theoretical paradigms to discuss the post-socialist condition and people, which the old Western Sovietology could not explain anymore, and it's uh, mostly Cold War area studies terms, or a more modernized version of the same, the Eurasian studies today, uh, because it still tends to rehearse some of the Cold War discourses of dissent, as uh, one of my American colleagues, Jennifer Suchland correctly points out, it was the easiest, really the easiest step to apply post-colonial theory to post-socialist reality. And the first examples ver- were very quick uh, to emerge. Such was David Shoni Moore's article in uh, PMLA, an in influential journal PMLA in 2001. So it was a step forward, of course, in comparison with Fukuyama's erasing discourse, as it at least did not refuse to see living people in Eurasia, even if it tended to pack our lives into these convenient foreign theoretical models. Yet, yeah, there were inherent problems with this post-colonial application to post-socialist reality. Because it was very difficult, uh, I- I- if it was even impossible, to lump together Eastern and Southeastern European countries and the USSR without taking into account uh, the very complex interplay of colonial and imperial differences and intersecting experiences of various Beltan empires uh, and their internal and external others. So Moore in that article never attempted to properly conceptualize the socialist brand, let's say, of modernity from its colonial and imperial side uh, on any grassroot level, going from below, from the analysis of concrete imperial and colonial configurations marked by specific (coughs) understanding of ethnicity, race, nation, religion, multiculturality, gender, and, of course, their intersection with various ideological forms, mm, including resistance. Uh, so he never um, tried to see how it was all specific for state socialist and quasi-socialist societies bound by past and present colonial s- syndromes, imperial syndromes, and s- asymmetries for, and conflicts. Uh, later, several interesting works applying or sometimes questioning the application of post-colonial theory uh, to ex-Soviet satellites or colonial subalterns were published, um, uh, mostly in the West, were uh, sometimes uh, written by, uh, by the people coming from former Soviet republics, um, which considered themselves closer to the West, to Europe, than the former Asiatic metropolis, such as Ukraine, Belarus, and, of course, the Baltic states. Um, well, I can uh, name just a few. For example, Vitaly Chernevsky's uh, work on literature and also on some political issues at uh, Columbia University, Bobkov, uh, originating from Belarus, uh, uh, Belarusian nationalist, and Korek, uh, if you speak of Poland, but still there was and there is no separate post socialist discourse wi- with its own critical language, neither in the West nor in the non West. Uh, Here I would like to mention Dorota Kolodzecik and Kristina Sandru who in their introduction to uh, 2012 special issue of the Journal of Postcolonial Writing which was devoted to colonialism, communism and East Central Europe explained this uh, lacking or marginal intersection between postcolonial and post-socialist, through political terms and and disciplinary terms claiming the anti-communist dissidence in Eastern Europe which was always seen in the West as a right-wing movement Uh, and they say that it was not necessarily the case but it still created this impression and also that post-colonial theory was grounded in what they call post-structural culturalism and therefore it did not accept other approaches it is true of the relations between western-based mostly post-marxist post-colonial theory and the post-socialist world in its uh, European peripheral, peripheral European frames. But it's certainly not the case, if we look uh, on a wider horizon, I mean less Western varieties of post-colonial discourse produced by third world intellectuals and also the post-socialist, and it's wider than uh, Eastern European sense. And uh, if we take all this into account, then it will be more uh, difficult, of course, to uh, conceptualize this uh, multiplicity of its structural forms, and yet important to consider in this ultimately failed, very questionable, true reversal totality, uh, which need to be understood in its own terms. Uh, so why post-colonial does not equal post-Soviet? When we're habitually thinking with this, within this binary either-or logic, post-socialist countries most often mm, either accept neoliberalism as the only remaining option, or go back to idealizing <coughs> socialist myths including uh, the infamous uh, proletarian internationalism myth, double standard myth, and the USSR patronage over the developing countries. So there is obviously this nostalgia for the people's friendship brand, um, which is a very telling symptom, as well as the belated cultural policy of the post-Soviet Russia, desperately striving to recreate and preserve the rapidly vanishing, shrinking post-Soviet as an imagined community, are mostly linguistic at this point, I would say, but also cultural, spiritual, and to some extent epistemic. The second intermediary world, which was itself a stray outgrowth of Western modernity, uh, we can say it was its aberrant version, and simply replaced liberalism with socialism, uh, but still it retained um, very... A number let's say of well-known vices of modernity as progressivism, developmentalism, the rhetoric of salvation, the fixity on newness, Orientalism, Eurocentrism, various forms of, <coughs> of forced modernization. So this has been beyond the reach of course of post-colonial theory for, for many reasons and very complex reasons which need to be understood and analyzed. The USSR in the minds of many post-colonial theorists of leftist western scholars remained what can be called, after Martin, affirmative action empire, exardom of proletarian internationalism. So these people could not possibly put an equation between colonialism and socialism, between the second and third worlds. Their mistake, uh, I think, was similar to a better known delusion of universalizing the Occident and the Orient as homogenous and stable constructs. In the minds of many scholars, a highly generalized image of socialism or totalitarian communism depending on the attitude, was finally shaped. So they seldom start to think of possible nuances, or possible differentiations within it, and refuse to realize that communism as such may have little to do with colonialism, but its real practices, especially in rea- relation to racialized others, clearly fall into this category of imperial domination and suppression. At the same time, uh, the post-colonial and third-world intellectuals correctly sensed that, um, let's say, liberation of the white Catholic Polish people from the Russian Soviet yoke, uh, if only to be shrunk to a new proverbial negative stereotype of Western Europe, is still not the same as decolonization of Namibians or Algerians, people who were rationally, religiously, civilizationally coded as an absolute difference. So uh, the post-colonial subaltern indeed shares with the post-socialists other such features as multiple dependencies. And the paradigm of subjection, uh, subalternity, and peripheralization, uh, mental, if not always economic, and social subordination, invisibility, as we said before, in the wider world, and the continued forms of silencing and trivialization by the dominant discourses. And also, another thing that uh, many people today share uh, the dispensability of human lives, the intri- intricate colonization of their spheres of being, of thinking of perception uh, by the norms and tastes of uh, Western modernity, uh, which of course continue today after political decolonization and flourish after formal de-Sovietization as well. Yet this general observation does not take into account the enormous notional, structural, and disciplinarian differences in the local histories and concrete manifestations of post-colonial and post-socialist constraints which uh, in the long run would prevent from simply equating the two intersecting uh, discourses. So, in a sense, we can say that post-colonial studies, when they ignored the second world, were rather insightful uh, in their realization of difference between power matrices and critical analysis based on racial, (coughs) ethnic, gender, religious, and uh, other discourses, and particularly their intersection. Uh, and uh, also, of course, taken into account class and uh, social and economic inequality. And also, uh, they were aware of this unjustified translation of the ideology of the lighter side of modernity into that of its darker side that is socialism into colonialism. So in my view, what can still allow us Regard uh, the post colonial and the post socialist together is not even a historical concept of colonialism as such, linked with post colonial studies, of course, as you know, but rather the concept uh, which emerged in uh, the decolonial option that is, the global coloniality global coloniality of power, uh, global coloniality of gender, of being, of knowledge, of perception. So um, here, we'd like to um, probably quote Sharad Chary and Catherine Verderi, uh, who called for thinking between the Paris in their famous article of 2009, in order to rethink contemporary imperialism. This effort to destabilize the easy and clear confinement of post-coloniality to the third world and post-socialism to the second world, I think is necessary. It's a necessary step which allows to see darker colonial side of Soviet and wider socialist modernity the possible projection in the direction of global coloniality, uh, which all of the worlds within this uh, rather outdated, tripartite scheme have been doing through. So in this sense, coloniality is the indispensable underside of modernity, a racial, economic, social, existential, gender, and epistemic bondage that was created uh, around the 16th century, of course, and was connected with the discovery of the Americas, firmly linking imperialism and capitalism, and maintained uh, uh, maintained though reconfigured since then within the modern slash colonial world. And uh, the Second World itself, uh, in that case, was originally a very dubious construct, of course. On one hand, it disrupted the dichotomy of the East versus the West, allowing certain groups to raise their status from the Third World to the Second One, as it happened uh, with the majority of uh, Central Asian countries, for example, in the Caucasus colonies. On the other hand, it differed from the global modernity and coloniality only on the most superfluous ideological level, being itself one of the stray uh, discourses of Western modernity, positioned officially as its alterity, maintaining nevertheless the major components of modernity as such. In a sense, we can even say, I think, that modernity in the 20th century was implemented in two forms, the liberal capitalist modernity and the socialist-statist one. Each of them had a sunny side and a darker side. Each of them had its own kind of coloniality. The darker colonial side of the West Soviet modernity was manifested very well in a second-rate type of the Soviet citizen, constructed in spite of internationalist slogans um, and an overt goal of racial mixing of the population in order to create a future Soviet mestizo you know, with an erased ethnic element. These identities turned out highly problematic and um, at times self-negating, which I can tell you from my own experience of being such a such constructed other. Right. Uh, the previous Soviet project of redeeming and converting the others into the communist faith is gone, while the total rejection and radicalized uttering still prevails, therefore, uh, along with colonialism as a specific historical, uh, socio-historical configuration, we really need to speak of this global coloniality as a consistent cultivation and maintaining of ontological, economic, social, rational, and epistemic bondage of Western modernity. Uh, one of the direct consequences is what? Is the uncritical acceptance of the existing hierarchy of human beings, of the world, where everyone is assigned a very strict and never questioned place. Global coloniality is a subordination to this general logic and structure of power firmly linked with capital, exploitation, violence, as well as the idea of race, of course, resulting in a specific control of labor, the state, subjectivities, Uh, (coughs) especially important, I I think, the coloniality of being, and coloniality of knowledge, uh, uh, including knowledge production and knowledge uh, distribution. So at the base of this global coloniality stands the idea of classifying humankind in relation to this colonial matrix of power, and then ontological marginalization of everybody who is non-Western, not quite Western, which is a very effective tool of modernity, easily detected in colonialism of any kind, uh, and also in socialist discourses. So uh, this equates indigenous people in the New World with the enemies of the people in the Soviet Union or with Muslim terrorists today, because in all cases, modernity justifies violence and the inversion of human rights, to use uh, words of those who are branded as not quite human, that is not quite European, not quite Soviet, not quite Christian, not quite heterosexual, not quite white, what have you. So um, in this case, of course, what is important to take into account is the mind colonization, which uh, was and is a disease common in all parts of the world and all startup up society. So what changes is the content of this brainwashing, It can be Christianity, it can be civilizing mission, it can be liberalism or communism. From overall consumerism, it comes to anti-terrorist zeal today, but what remains untouched is this rhetoric of salvation, we can call it, uh, hiding the colonial logic of control, domination, and suppression. It is a syndrome of enforcing happiness on everyone by means of some kind of truth with a capital letter, decided to be universal (coughs) and necessary for all. So then there is a very interesting question of uh, the reaction of the mm, ex-Third World and the Western Left to the collapse of the socialist utopia. First of all, this disappointment of the Third World and socialist modernity, which didn't cope with its mission, and it created a very paradoxical sensitivity in the end, I think. The post-colonial, as we know, is largely post-Marxist or neo-Marxist, however unorthodox that Marxism may be, While the post-socialist mostly regards Marxism and Communism as a target of criticism, the collapse of the socialist world was catastrophic not only for us, its inhabitants, but also for those who used uh, it as a role model before. In a number of third world discourses today, there is a tendency to keep their monopoly victimization and suffering and avoid the quest for possible intersections and dialogues with other others, including the post-socialist world. So there is this negative rivalry, I think, uh, which is a direct result of the thoughtless following logic of modernity, with its typical agonistic approach, uh, making any dialogue highly problematic. Uh, if the former third world quickly turned to different role models, the Western post-left found themselves in a more difficult situation of yet another revisionist and highly utopian turn, which so far has not resulted in anything promising. In the context of the crisis of uh, left ideologies, uh, one of the younger scholars, uh, also post-Marxist scholar, Alexei Penzin, points out the asymmetry of the post-Soviet vis-à-vis the post-colonial and the post-Fordist, which is also important for him. He explains that the Soviet was indeed first regarded in the West and in the Third World as a salvation from Fordism and also from colonialism. And st- today, he reflects uh, on a peculiar transcoding, as he says, of the post-colonial discourse in the post-Soviet space. The Russian people today are becoming the new subalterns, he writes, suffering from the unconscious complex of the lost battle and forfeited grandeur of the vanished Soviet modernity, which is counterbalanced only by dubious rhetoric of geographical expansion. I think Penzen interprets this sensibility um, in analogously with post-colonial which I don't quite agree with, because I think that uh, it's, post, it's a post-imperial consciousness, even with an important correction of the very specific status of the Russia as a genus-faced empire. Post-Soviet subject indeed goes through this distorted post-colonial complex, finding itself under the immediate pressure of uh, global coloniality today. Uh, and a specific problem that uh, a lot of, or a number of post-Soviet intellectuals Uh, face is their blindness to this darker side of modernity, that is coloniality, and that is why I think they tend to code the imperial difference as post-coloniality. They tend to to equate these two things, and this is not quite fair, because then we stop seeing the power hierarchy difference between the same and the other, and turn the same into a victim, a false subaltern, erasing altogether the real post-colonial others. Conveniently rubbing out this guilt and the responsibility of the same uh, voluntary or involuntary. Uh, Jennifer Suchman, whom I already mentioned today, uh, ironically summarized this peculiar post socialist void sensibility in her recent article, which is uh, a reformulation of Gayatri Spivak's well known question Can the post socialist speak in this case? Yes, it can the subaltern speak in the original? So, can the post socialist speak? Uh, I can say from our side, the post-socialists who cannot speak, uh, that uh, it's, a, it's a really a rhetorical question. What does it mean for us to be nothing, to be a void, to be uh, nothing in the new architecture of the world, to be someone who has never been able to start speaking in the last two decades? Uh, why this parallel between the subaltern and the post-socialists in the first place? Is this just a matter of a catchy post-colonial metaphor uh, applied to a different context or uh, there is some inherent similarity. Uh, alluding to uh, W.B. Du Bois, or Dubois, to say it correctly, phrase, uh, Jane Anna and Lewis Gordon point out that racism and colonialism generated people who marked as a continuing sign of ill fate and ruin. Problem people, they call it. The rapidly vanishing second world, and particularly its post-Soviet part, can be called the same, I think. It's a problematic region in such a post-Dubosian collective sense of people with delayed humanity or questionable humanity and no place in the new architecture of the world. But the problem was that it was not a clearly, let's say, racialized division. It was a poorly representable semi-alterity. Russians and wider Eastern Europeans have become, after 1990, the off-white blacks of the new global world, not in Norman Mailer's sense of the hipsters or wiggers, but in the sense of looking and behaving too similar to the same, yet remaining essentially others. The inhabitants of the post-Soviet space, who for the last 20 years have been universally regarded as the annoying remnants of this collapsed system, unwelcome in any part of the world, where they have been trying to escape to remain the outlaws of the new world and they essentially have no future. We have no future. Anyone today can become such a victim monster, symbolizing and signalizing the crisis and annoying for those who are still precariously afloat, let's say. whole countries are becoming the same precarious lives like the the south of Europe today, uh, seriously touched by the systemic crisis of modernity. Yet, I think that post-Soviet case is particularly doomed, the post-socialist and post-Soviet world has continued to vacillate, we can say, be- between the position of the subject and the object, We are supposed to either to reform and become modern and Western subjects in some distant future, of course, to join the refurbished global South, when applicable, or to simply vanish. Uh, So the post-Soviet subject does not suffer what can be called the sweatshop sublime as much as it wanted to. It does not experience guilt, passively consuming the fruit of other people's labor. Neither does it experience what can be called Caliban's anger, uh, until very recently the post-Soviet intellectual elites have really continued to see the Western tradition as their own, being brought up on Western culture and identifying with it uh, very passionately. There's one recurrent sensibility here that of the present community of fate, of the millions, the ex the the ex-masters, who all of a sudden found themselves in a very similar situation of being thrown out of history and of uh, modernity. Uh, Another diversion that I would like to make here is a problematizing the internal colonization model that you might be familiar with through Alexander Atkins' book that was published in English first about internal colonization. Uh, so if Suchland uh, still proposes to use post-colonial discourse to uh, analyze Central and Eastern European states, then Alexander Erkin uses a different model when he's trying to analyze Russia and the Russian Empire. But in that book, he's not going in the direction of Soviet Union, of course. The internal colonization as a model of the Russian Empire where the state colonized its own people, and mainly ethnically same people, the serfs, is reductionist, I think, and blind towards the experience of the real colonial others, again, of the Russian empire, those marked by (laughs) racial, religious, cultural, not merely social differences that Atkin is trying to stress. Particularly alarming to me is Atkins' distortion of race in Russian-Soviet context. Speaking of estates as a substitute for race in the Russian context, he carefully avoids those phenomena which have always demonstrated peculiar Russian manifestations (coughs) of racism, and focuses on ethnically Russian and religiously orthodox strata. He ignores, for example, the so-called Inarotsi. Inarotsi, literally is those who were born others, who were the ethnic racial category because even if they adopted orthodox Christianity, they remained others and could not change their estate of their own will. So the tactic of deliberate ignoring of real, these real colonial others brings Atkins to interpreting as he says, the shaved beard as an analog of the color of skin, which is, I think, still not the same. So can reproduce reproduces coloniality of knowledge, concentrating only on one side of the complex multidirectional Russian imperial colonial matrix, which leads to a distortion of dynamic intersecting imperial and colonial processes in Russia. Then we come to another interesting subject, the second class Europeans in <coughs> interest Europe. As with central and southeastern European case, Here I think global coloniality is manifested through a number of very stable characteristics such as unconscious Eurocentrism, often of a secondary mimicking kind and self-negating kind, the conflicts of the second-class Europeans, poor relatives of EU. So the consequence is very dangerous. is an uncritical acceptance of the existing hierarchy again of the world where everyone is given a very strict space and even if you're not happy with the space, you are scared to death to lose it and go well down in this hierarchy. So um, it, it, it really creates a very, a very strange sensibility. And the Eastern and Central European post-socialist countries have always remained in this capacity of second-class Europeans. In more recent terms, the new Europeans, non-core Europeans. So in their case, the struggle is, first of all, for claiming their right to be considered European, with no pejorative prefixes and adjectives. Uh, there is no major ontologized racial and religious difference, of course, in this case. And the main drive, uh, uh, which on the surface resembles some of the post colonial discourses, essentially differs, uh, differs from them, of course. It's a drive to finally become the same, identical with Europe, to make obvious the essential Europeanness, and uh, not to claim the right to be different and equal at the same time as in uh, some post colonial and especially decolonial uh, discourses. So, here I would like to give you an example of this triple, ah, uh, it's shocking, right? It's an interesting and provocative reflection on the issues we find in the art projects uh, with co-political activism, a hybrid of public media and guerrilla strategies in the form of tactical media, which is performed by Balkan artist Tania Osovich. She has been scandalizing European cities with her provocative performances, uh, such as the series Misplaced Woman, performed collectively in different public spaces all over Europe, I will show it in a minute, Uh, um, uh, these places which are relevant for migrants, airports, train stations, Western Union banks, language schools, police departments, this this is where she performs this uh, this thing, Uh, places, as she says, where the mobile female body becomes particularly vulnerable. Tanya keeps coming back to the shocking role of second-class European people and dispensable lives assigned to women, especially women uh, from former socialist countries in the West, and focuses on the intersection of gender and sexuality and migration and displacement as rendered in the biopolitics of exclusion in the former EU, which lumps all migrants together in an abstracted and single alienated group. Such was her powerful and very long-term art and life project looking for a husband with EU passport, uh, in which Tania actually went for real through all the humiliating and shameful stages of selling herself as a commodity. Uh, documenting the stages in the form of public performances all along in order to buy her the right to desired and unattainable mobility. So what she did is she put through a marriage aid um, dating service, a vaguely vaguely concentration camp um, style ad, as you see here, uh, and she received over 500 letters from prospective husbands, then she finally married a German guy and was granted a temporary visa. Uh, later she was uh, denied um, a, 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 a temporary um, residence permit. Uh, she divorced her husband for a grand divorce party and um, um, did another project, which was called Integration Project Office. Um, so another thing that she does is this that I mentioned in the beginning, um, this misplaced woman. And I put it together with Taus Khacheva. It's an artist from Russia, from the Caucasus, avarian uh, artist from Dagestan. But before I turn to that, I want to show you an Uzbek artist, that I, if I can find. Yeah, that's it. It's an Uzbek artist whose name is Vyacheslav Usinev, who offers a very green picture of post-Soviet neocolonialism and migratism. In the metaphor of the old, new, new dispensable lives, this is called a guest worker's flight, a guest worker's flight. A plane, as you see, made of adobe bricks. Adobe is a material clay, right, which is still used by peasants of Central Asia to build their houses. So there is a very strange and unlikely combination of this material and a shocking um, combination with an airplane as a symbol of modernity, of course. So what is awaiting these people? on the other side of global migration, the workers' overalls closely resembling the prisoner's clothes made of these checked plastic trunks, uh, as you see. And uh, these are uh, immediately recognized by most post-Soviet people because uh, a lot of shuttle traders used them uh, in the early 90s to go and bring goods. So from the adobe house to the high-tech modernity to the same age-old status of a low-paid worker with no rights whose life has no value. And now we we'll go back to Taos, and I will tell you <coughs> just a little bit about this artist. It's really interesting. Um, Taos comes from the Northern Caucasus, uh, and she has very similar to also its works, Problematizing Integration Methods and Rhetoric and uh, Affirmative Action and Hypocrisy, performed uh, both in London and Moscow, because she went uh, to school in London, and so you see here, it's not very well seen uh, in that one. Uh, uh, It was a performance, I want my uh, show at Tate Modern, which she performed, and then there was another one, and in Russia she performed this highly political one. She says, I'm not um, a a person of uh, Caucasus nationalities, as as they're called by police in Moscow. I'm an Avarian, and uh, um, uh, Avarian was part of Dagestan, who became part of the Russian Empire uh, as a result of the Caucasus War. So it's a piece of history that she gives Uh, to all um, these policemen. And then she's wearing a Varian costume in Metro and uh, filming the reaction of passengers who are basically afraid of her because they they think she's a terrorist with a bomb, right? So they're leaving the car in Metro, and so all sorts of interesting projects. And the first one, uh, this one, uh, is also interesting. She ordered these transparent bags And she put an ad in the newspaper, like whoever would like to change, to to, to make an exchange of their old bags or suitcase into these ones, please come to this um, flea market. And a lot of people did, and of course they didn't understand the 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 metaphor uh, which was involved in this uh, transparent bag, (laughs) right? But I mean, Taouss is 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 doing a lot of uh, things like that. and I think it's, uh, it's also interesting that this kind of sensibility that I'm speaking about is expressed better in art, in the arts, we were talking about that with, with Dacher in, in earlier this, this morning, uh, than in any kind of theoretical forms. Uh, a few years ago, I was teaching in the north of Germany. I asked my students where Europe ended for them and where Asia started for them. And they said, at the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. <laughs> still being within this juxtaposition of capitalism and socialism. Then I asked the Russian students in 2002, and they told me in a more, let's say, neutral scientific way that the Ural Mountains is what divides Europe from Asia. But then an interesting thing happened. In 2009, I was talking with a Mexican-American student uh, in Tarragona, in the summer school of Tarragona, who assured me that Europe is everything that is to the north of the global south. Mm -hmm. And hence, for him, there is no difference between Russia and Germany. The latter mixture of the old west-east and new north-south divide is an American hemispheric view, I must say, from a Sabeltan perspective, of course, which is quite different from the Eurasian situation and interpretations. The same way as according to Neil Smith, the American century was still geographic and continued to providential and exceptionalist <coughs> manifest destiny. <coughs> Ideology, uh, today's North-South division easily reveals its expansionist imperial grounds, even if they seem to be territorial disembodied. So then you come to this uh, North-South divide, yeah, uh, which is another important issue of <coughs> The erasing of the second world has resulted in the increased binarity of the world order. And in spite of today's rhetoric of polycentric capitalism and the real success in de-westernizing, de-westernization model of Southeast Asia, for example, among other regions, and particularly of China, of course, the problem still is there, right? Uh, The problem still is there, and the problem that today we're left with just two extremes affecting the leading geopolitical models and stuffing the multifarious world and contradictory world into this procrucian bed of binary uh, uh, logic. Today, uh, the economic aspect seems still to prevail in the idea of the global north versus the global south, as was manifested in Willy Brandt, 1980 division of the world at approximately the latitude of 30 degrees with an exception of New Zealand and Australia, I think, the white settler colonies, and India, which was often not included, or the seemingly neutral digital explanation, which is very spread today, of the north-south divide, which is, again, collapsing. Yet the cultural, racist, and religious reductionist and deeply imperial sides of these concepts and divisions cannot be hidden, cannot be entirely hidden or suppressed, which leads us to the imperial colonial again, differential, and modernity and the necessity of looking in the north-south construct um, uh, through a different lens. The north-south divide as a product of the north always codes the global south as what poor, of course. Poor, suffering, discriminated against, fixing its essentialized place of a victim which needs to be helped through charity or destroyed when its resistance becomes too violent and dangerous. The crucial point, then, is what? To stop looking at the global South and its epistemology, ethics, ontology through this totally negative lens, and stop seeing poverty as the only connector between different Souths. Resistance can and does turn to what can be called re-existence, uh, a model after a Colombian theorist and uh, artist also, uh, Adolfo Albana Quinta. So he, he talks about that. I think it's very important. Not negative resistance, but re-existence as a positive model of existential creativity and deculturation, uh, which cannot and does not turn to transculturation, is dangerous. Uh, so what happens with the vanishing yet complex and non-homogenized second world uh, in the new binary structure of the world, this order, uh, I, I try to um, depict on this, on this um, diagram. The 2nd world does not easily join, as you see, one of the two remaining poles, generating very strange oxymoronic categories, such as the poor north, because uh, this is what Russia is generally, uh, which does not equal, of course, the poor and global south. Or uh, if we speak about the colonies, such as the Caucasus or Central Asia, we deal with uh, the south of the poor north. Uh, the latter, in its turn, does not equal or entirely merge with the global south, although there are a lot of intersections, of course. To understand this logic, I think we need to introduce two concepts, which were coined by Walter Mignola, and then developed by the members of the Coloniality Collective, including myself, when writing about Russia. It's imperial difference and colonial difference, very simple concepts, uh, which are transparent in the West, East, and North, South divide. The colonial difference refers to the differential between the first class capitalist empires of modernity, such as the British Empire, and their colonies. This is the absolute other of the first world, translated into the concept of uh, the West and today the global North. The imperial difference is more tricky. It's a trickier thing, <coughs> uh, because it refers to various losers, let's say, like Russia, uh, uh, the losers which failed to or were prevented by different circumstances and powers from fulfilling the imperial mission in modernity and uh, were forced to take the second class places. These empires were usually intellectually, epistemologically, culturally colonized by the winners, by the Great Britain, by France, to a lesser extent Germany, and of course the US today. And what happened is that they developed, in the end, a catching up logic, a whole area of psychological hang-ups, schizophrenic collective complexes, ideologies of the besieged camp, or sometimes, alternatively, victory and defeat, Including, uh, of course, the artistic uh, responses and creative responses to the subjectivity. Then, imperial difference itself uh, collapses into two versions the external and internal version. The internal refers to the European losers of the second modernity, which became later the south of Europe, such as Spain, Portugal, <coughs> and, uh, Italy. But um, the other, the external imperial difference, It refers, uh, first of all, to Russia, but to some extent to the Ottoman Sultanate, of course. So here we speak of not quite Western or non-Western, not quite capitalist or (coughs) non-capitalist empires of modernity. Uh, uh, And uh, Russia, of course, is a paradigmatic paradigmatic case of such a genus faced empire, rich yet poor, providential yet failed. Uh, Russia that has never been seen by Western Europe as its part, remained a racialized empire, Uh, and feels itself a colony in the presence of the West, but at the same time tries to project uh, its imperial mission onto the places uh, in the north, uh, I mean in the south and in the east, which it sees uh, as its colonies. So the imperial difference generates Russia's secondary status in European eyes and consequently an open or hidden orientalization because Russia itself acts uh, in the capacity of the Orient uh, for the West. And it's a, it's a very strange situation with this redoubling mirrors and reflections. And in the end, both mirrors, the one turned in the direction of the colonies and one turned to Europe in the direction of Russia itself, appear distorting mirrors that create a specific unstable sensibility of Russian uh, intellectuals. In case of the Ottoman Sultanate, this complex gave birth also to its own complexes, to self-racializing and efforts to whiten the elites. While in case of Russia, it generated the complex of a secondary European. Uh, In uh, its colonies, for example, in Central Asia and Turkestan, it led to self-orientalization, self-racializing, multiple inferiority complexes. In case of the Caucasus, uh, a symbolic self-whitening mimicry, resulting in a stagnation of any alternative political and social movements and actors. Mm, uh, Here we we have to take into account that race functioned in the Soviet Union in very strange and transmuted forms as class and ideological overtones were translated into racial and ethnic ones. In the Tsarist empire, it was mainly religion that was translated into racial ethnic categories, for example, Muslim first became a Tatar in the 19th century then, a bourgeois nationalist in the USSR, and today simply black. Racializing thus had one face in the metropolis uh, when enemies of the people of any ethnic or any religious belonging were rendered subhuman, and a totally different face in the colonies uh, where the discourses of the civilizing mission, development, progressivism, Soviet Orientalism clearly demonstrated their links with Western colonialist macro (coughs) So Russia strove to build, however unsuccessfully, its own global model, you can say, its own modernity, sharing its main vices of the Western original, but positioning itself as an independent alternative uh, project. Uh, With the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the unattainability of this task became obvious, and this was, I think, the most crucial failure of the Russian and Soviet empire. Because having lost its quasi-theocratic element in the form of the Soviet myth, today's Russia is unsuccessfully trying to change it into a, a nationalist idea. But the narrow skin of the nation state interpreted in an essentialist way is, of course, too small to cover the enormous rotting corpse of the Russian empire, and the Soviet empire, whose ideological cliches are still quite alive in the minds of many uh, people. So what happens in the end, we can say, is the revenge of geography. Uh, an anxiety to divide the world according to the north-south break uh, replaces the previous west-east division, including the capitalist versus socialist economy. under the facade of pure economic development of classifying locales as belonging or not belonging to the north, uh, this presumably new division um, hides the assumption of the zero-point epistemology as the main epistemic principle of modernity. Uh, such a move, in fact, hides the imperial colonial relations, which accentuate space in history, let's say, rather than disembodied time as such, or what uh, was mentioned and uh, discussed by Walter Mignol in one of his articles uh, in this anti-Cartesian formula, not cogit or ergo sum, but I am where I think. I am where I think. Uh, today's peculiar return of geography and an urge to re-territorialize in actual and symbolic sense is marked by the drive to depoliticize history and erase the power symmetries. This proves to be impossible, of course, as the global north as a new point of uh, ultimate arrival uh, is even more unattainable uh, for the majority of actors uh, than the ideological west was before. Geography remains deeply ingrained in the coloniality of power, of being, of gender, of knowledge, It prevents under modern subhuman groups mm, and countries from belonging to the north, and keeps the gates in a way much more vigilantly than during the Cold War. And a good example in this case is Turkey, of course. And now, since we don't have much time left, let's turn to border, border thinking and post-socialist condition. Uh, A crucial element of the colonial option uh, that is relevant for thinking up a possible post socialist discourse is certainly border thinking. As a critical yet positive perspective, border positionality is marked by relational and dynamic double critique. We say of both local ethnic nationalist and also globalist models. It's a balancing between modernity and trans modernity as overcoming of modernity and not coming back to some authentic imagined past. For border thinkers, it's crucial to expose how and why modernity in- invented tradition in the first place, and then reinscribe what the West has taken uh, uh, to me, a tradition onto the texture of trans-modernity. This is the gist of uh, exteriority, which is a philosophic equivalent of Buddha thinking, as an outside, <coughs> which is created by the inside, um, as alterity from the inside of totality. This uh, stance, which is very specific, this Buddha stance, is, can be illustrated by a Chicano poet and philosopher Gloria Saldua's words from her famous book Borderlands La Frontera the New Mestiza. Uh, you see, it's partly in English, partly in Spanish, right? So uh, the most important part, part is here, to survive the borderlands, you must live sin fronteras without borders, yes? To be a crossroads. The last words accurately describe the border stance, which emerges when you are the border yourself, yes? When the border cuts through you, when you are not just crossing borders, but really the border in, is inside you when um, you don't discuss borders from some zero-point positionality, but instead you dwell in the border. Ansaldoa calls this painful position una irida abierta, an open wound between the lighter and darker sides of modernity, coloniality. And there are a lot of examples like that which I can give you. A Chilean-American playwright and human rights activist Ariel Dorfman, uh, who's talking about bridge between the north and the south. The British-Caribbean writer, Carol Phillips, uh, who, is, uh, who says that for him belonging to the airport is an ideal transit border state uh, of someone who, whose home is in the Atlantic. <coughs> the Argentinian diasporic philosopher Maria Lugones, it's a journey um, along other people's worlds with a loving perception, as she says. Uh, and uh, um, I feel very much the same in my transdiasporic uh, border stance of being an internal other of the Russian um, Empire. What is important is how to create not merely a negative or any kind of aggressive resistance out of this unfortunate situation, but also re- re-existence in uh, Adolfo Albanekinta's terms an other world growing out of border thinking grounded in the painfully experienced consciously worked out eventually transcended geopolitics and body politics of knowledge. It is built on the experience of being born and educated in the entanglement of this Western invention of modernity versus tradition that is in the exteriority of living and thinking as a racialized other, for example, in Russia. And what I mean here is not a banal identity politics, but rather is an identity in politics, Uh, grounded in the double consciousness, of course, mm, and um, an assertion of the wretched epistemic uh, rights. And the most important element of this Buddha thinking is self-conscious, self-conscious liberation from the zero-point epistemology, which withdraws the knowing subject from the world and turns this world into an object of study. In other words, uh, Buddha thinking negates the monotopic subject-object type of cognition and knowledge production, which has been, Uh, legitimate and uh, the main one in modernity, Buddha thinking allows us to question the myth of modernity or its rhetoric if you will grounded in the idea of never questioning progress, development and forcefully making everyone happy according to a particular idea of happiness. As Walter Mignola wrote in one of his articles it's a peculiar enchantment of modernity, by modernity which learned to play a logical trick it justifies itself using itself as the model and reason for justification, or uh, as he says in semiotic terms, its locus of enunciation is inside itself. So border position articulates a temporal spatial fracture and a (coughs) shift in the geography of reasoning. This imminent radical intellectual shift is marked by the color of reason, in Paget Henry's words, and not merely a color of skin, and inevitably by the Du Boisian double consciousness and the assertion of epistemic rights the assertion of disobedience of the other who refuses to be pigeonholed again inside the constructed tradition. So Buddha thinking and Buddha vision are grounded in an eternal uh, internal negotiation of inclusion and exclusion, outside and inside, rooted in irremovable contradictions, of course, because it's always neither here nor there, or both here and there, depending on the way you, you feel the situation. Uh, also is grounded in... Uh, Polysemantic conjunctive logic, non-exclusive duality, such a position is always more nuanced and more complex in the way it reflects reality than any monocultural, monolinguistic positions. It's grounded in multispatial or diatopic uh, hermeneutics, which is, uh, again, uh, very important if we try to understand any kind of border. The post-socialist is a much less homogenous entity, of course, than even the diverse and contradictory post-colonial, which also has been criticized, especially recently, for being an umbrella term. The (coughs) reason is that the post-socialist category uh, uses the outdated marker of ideology to replace a much more complex variety of phenomena which are interrelated in a hierarchical way and grounded not in simple ideology. Alone, but in other fundamental things like epistemic racism, existential self-mediation, peculiar redoubling of xenophobic discourses, which uh, modern ideologies such as liberalism or communism are unable to explain. So the tag post-socialist is also unable to successfully glue together this multiplicity of countries, people, cultures, religions, sensibilities uh, that came under the Soviet auspices for several decades in the 20th century and then dispersed again in different directions. These people still have different local histories, different understanding of their situation, aims, roles, prospects. Some of them can hope to eventually join modernity, even probably not in the capacity they would like to, uh, such as the non-core Europeans. Others are destined to disappear and never be given a chance to speak, to step on board modernity or be disqualified as a global south. But still others would reach a critical understanding of their position, of course, and decide to radically delink from modernity and its myths. So um, to sum up, post-communism is not a concept that can bring together all of these conflicting experiences, the same way as post-colonial theory cannot explain uh, all of uh, the reverberations either. And it's high time now to work out a more complex, theoretically intersecting, and properly differentiated approach through the interpretation of the post-socialist realities and subjectivities, uh, avoiding studying it for, as an object uh, from some presumably disembodied position and ghettoing the ex-second world in its intellectual isolation from the topical discussions and social theory and criticism. What is needed here, I think, is a real dialogue, uh, is plur- it, which has to be pluritopic, that is multispatial, yes, grounded in multispatial hermeneutics, as a major tool, and um, what can be called not a comparative, but an imperative approach. I like this, uh, this term, which was uh, offered by Raymond Panikkar. Uh, he says that we need another comparative philosophy, but an imperative philosophy is an endless mutual learning, unlearning, relearning process in the atmosphere of plurality. So instead of applying the ready-made postcolonial theory to post socialist spaces, we can start with the geopolitics and body politics of knowledge growing out of the local histories, subjectivities and complex experiences of Eastern and Southeastern Europe, Central Asia, the Caucasus or Russia. And then we will shift this emphasis from universalist applications of ready discourses and traveling theories uh, to some dis- to some different pluriversal, pluritopic intersubjectivation. Uh, uh, along with historically and spatially bound uh, discourses such as post critique, a dialogue with other critical approaches I think is necessary. For example, the colonial approach, the colonial option uh, is also a good uh, source uh, for such a dialogue in the future. Uh, uh, instead of liberal assimilation and post-colonial analogizing in Jennifer Suhland's formulation then, uh, we would have to see the ex-Second world as contradictory, diverse, non-homogeneous, semi-alterity, let's say, with its unique intersectionality. Uh, post-socialist, post-colonial, and post-imperial overtones uh, constantly intersect and communicate in the complex imaginary of the ex-Soviet space, particularly in the conditions of the new massive void that we are becoming today. And it can lead to, anyth- it can lead to nostalgia, to recycled imperial nationalist myths, but also it can lead to meaningful uh, decolonial and de-Sovieticized resistance <coughs> and eventually re-existence. And there are reasons to speak of both considerable differences and intersections between post-colonial studies and still amorphous and under-theorized post-socialist uh, discourse. So it's an urgent task now to develop a separate discourse of the post-socialist world, which would be open, fluid, really topic, of course, uh, in this conceptual realm, uh, with a very nomadic... Mode of thinking, rejecting any li- linearity, causality marked by creative creolization, and having a wide enough and shifting vocabulary which would allow for a meaningful dialogue of various porous critical discourses and stances. Uh, Neither of the versions of the post socialist condition can claim uh, a universal status yet. Uh, but no one's knowledge would be excluded uh, or appropriated anymore, and each of them would be able to add some interesting and valuable insights to the critical exchange uh, on the crucial questions of agency, subjectivity, emancipation of thinking, of knowledge, of being, of gender, of course, that's a very important sphere, of perception. Uh, uh, that is uh, what I'm going to talk about in my next presentation today, about the decolonial aesthesis in today's global trans-modern context. So I'm sorry if I raised more questions than I offered you any answers, but uh, it's uh, still a very new area, and so I hope that you will help me with your questions to clarify something. Thank you.